What does our Heavenly Father want us to be when we grow up? Dave Wurtson begins our lesson surrounded by several kids. He asks them the question I just asked you. What do you want to be when you grow up? Let's sit down and join the circle. What do you want to be when you grow up? Can some of the kids just tell me, Benjamin, what do you want to be when you grow up? You want to be a Christian musician. A baseball player, great. You're kind of like Joshua. He wants to be an NBA basketball player. And looking at the size of his parents, I think it'll be a relative miracle. Uh, He wants to be the next Sean Kemp. A teacher. We had one of the girls who wanted to be a teacher. That's great. Well, that's a very noble profession. When I was a little kid, what I wanted to be is I wanted to be a West Point cadet. In fact, when I was like 10 years of age, I used to, I wanted to go to West Point so badly. My dad had a Bible study, and every, maybe about once or twice a month, we went up the, past New York City and up into West Point, and I met with like, a lot of the Army football players were in my dad's study, a guy back in the olden days, Joe Caldwell, played quarterback for him, and a lonely end named Bill Carpenter. My dream was to go to West Point. In fact, I wanted to go to West Point so badly. Have you ever seen Bleebs? That's the first year guys at West Point, and now the girls as well. Uh, they eat square meals. Last uh, few weeks ago, I was at Norwich Military School, and the first year students there we're eating a square meal. It's where you sit down at the table, you sit at rapt attention, and you come up like this and eat all your meal like that. You've seen guys do that. Well, I used to do that for all the meals I ate because I thought that would help me go to, uh, to go to West Point. I also used to march to school. You can, you can tell how the kids would think about me. Here's this fat little kid, 10 years of age, marching to school and making all the corners square and everything else. I really wanted to go to, med- go to West Point. Strangely enough, when I got up into high school, I didn't want to go to West Point anymore. Haven't you found that your dreams kind of fade? And I changed gears in high school and decided I didn't want to go to West Point, but I wanted to go to medical school. So I started to work really, really hard to go to medical school. And so all of you can think of some of that same progression. In fact, some of you are now 55 years of age, and you're saying, what do I want to be when I grow up? And you're, you're thinking about changing careers, and you're really wrestling with this whole idea of what am I going to be when I grow up? Well, I want to talk to you about what God wants you to be when you grow up. And strangely enough, I have never had a little child tell me this. Dave, what I want to be when I grow up is I want to be an elder and a deacon in a church. And I think there's probably a lot of reasons why little kids don't say that when I grow up, I want to be a spiritual leader. That's what I want to be. And I think the reason that is, if you stop and think about it, who in the world would ever want to grow up and become a leader in an organization that's composed, like in our own church family, of several hundred volunteers? I mean, some of you are in management positions at work, and, and you, you know, you're involved with salaries and everything. At least you got some hold over the people you're working. But can you imagine trying to hold together groups of several hundred where everybody's volunteer, and everybody's independent, and everybody has their own ideas? And who would ever want to grow up and have to go to church business meetings? And not just in our own church, but you're all from a lot of different churches. Just think of some of the really neat experiences that you've had in church business meetings. I mean, you've seen brother so-and-so cussing out sister so-and-so, and and you've heard brother so-and-so that it's going to be like this or else. In fact, uh, the church I was at last week, they had a big family business meeting on Monday night right after I left. 
right after I talk to him about some of the things we're talking about today. And no one wants to grow up and get involved in all that nitty-gritty of church leadership, right? But I want, to, I want you to focus on something today. I believe that all of us have an idea of dreams of what we want to be when we grow up. And we all believe that we grow up and we get those things that we're going to really be happy. We're really going to be satisfied. Well, I want you to begin to think for a minute about what your Heavenly Father wants you to be when you grow up. And I want you to begin there looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3. Because in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is talking to us about leadership, the need for leadership, especially the leadership in Christ's family. And this text begins with, this is a trustworthy statement. Now, I love that phrase, because in my life, as I grow older, I find out that there's not many statements that are made, or not much, there is not much teaching that's given that's really trustworthy, that you can really depend upon it. In fact, to be honest with you, as I travel around and talk to different church leaders around the country, a whole lot of church leaders have decided that what the Apostle Paul talks about in this passage is really not trustworthy. That you really can't have the value system and the, and the philosophy of leadership that the Apostle Paul had. In fact, most of the church is run on a business philosophy. And what you do is you get very powerful, successful business people because they can take out their wallets and they can cover the bills. And then you don't have to have Kim making announcements every week about how much money you need because the power of business people can make it happen. For example, Riverside Church, where Don and I was raised, was built by Rockefeller Money. You've all heard of the Rockefeller Plaza. Well, John D. Rockefeller gave millions to build the Riverside Church. You know, they didn't have financial problems. And a guy named Harry Emerson Fosdick, who really wasn't committed to the fact that Christ died for our sins or that that Christ rose again. In fact, he was committed to, to the fact that you're good and that you can make it and that this God thing is just part of the emotional side of life. And he was a brilliant, brilliant orator that kind of baptized the American dream into a Sunday morning churchianity. And a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant preacher, but he was backed by Rockefeller money. And that's the way most churches are. In fact, even today, the conservatives have their money behind them, and the liberals have their money behind them. And yet, often, neither side is really looking at this is a trustworthy state. And this is the way the Lord wants his body, his family, to be organized. And Paul the Apostle says, this is a trustworthy statement. If anyone sets his heart on becoming an overseer, he desires a noble task. The first thing I want to talk to you about is I want to lay out before our children. I want to lay out before our teenagers. I want to lay out before you as an adult a noble task. Because as I talk to people, a lot of people that had great dreams when they graduated from college and they they looked forward to getting this job and they were all excited about it, I'm talking to a whole lot of them that in their 40s are saying, it's not a noble task anymore. It doesn't meet my needs anymore. It's not bringing fulfillment to me anymore. And what I want you to realize is what I want to talk to you about today is truly a noble task. If you devote yourself to this, in fact, the scripture says if anyone desires, and the word that's used there for desires is a word that means that Paul uses later about the person who who desires to become wealthy. And every one of you men and women know what it's like to have a passion to make money. 
I remember when I was on the book field selling books, and, and I remember the excitement that would come over me. I remember one day I was going to bust a $400 day, which back in the late 60s was a big, big day in the book field, to, to sell more than $400 worth of books in just one pop. Now, I know that some of you sell millions at one pop or thousands at one pop, but I remember as a young college student, man, to actually sell $400 worth of books in a day, and man, I was motivated. Man, I came home about 10.30 at night, and, and I got some more books, and went back out there and, and said, Mary, I'm going to really make it. And all of you wives have seen your husband get that kind of fever, that money drive, and we're going to do it. Maybe you hadn't seen your wife get that as she's gone out and tried to make some money. All of you have people at work this week who will have incredible desire to be able to make money. The Apostle Paul says, as one of God's children, your Father in Heaven doesn't want you to burn with passion to make just money. He wants you to burn with passion to become an overseer. In fact, the word that's used there is the word bishop. And a lot of you might have that in your translation. And this is a great way for me to illustrate how English words sometimes lose the original meaning of the New Testament completely. Because if I mention the word bishop to you, what do you automatically think of? You think of a great ecclesiastical leader, you've already got him dressed in long flowing robes and you've got his tiara, this high, you know, sub, you know big thing on his head and he, he's out there, you know, throwing the holy water around. Right, you think of a bishop or some of you that are from an Episcopalian or a Methodist background, you think of the bishop as being the, the religious professional who is over the whole district, even bigger than a district. In fact, like there's a Methodist bishop or there's an Episcopalian bishop who's over the whole diocese of Dallas. So we, when we use the word bishop, we think of someone who's a religious ordained clergyman that has a high position in the church. And if he gets to be really important, you call him not an arch, you call him not a bishop, but an archbishop. And if you're from a Roman Catholic background, you have the cardinals and, and you have the pope and, you have the, and bishops keep moving up and up and up. Strangely enough, the word in the first century didn't mean that kind of a thing at all. It didn't really come to have that meaning until the second century. In the first century, the word simply means an overseer. It just simply means someone that gives oversight. Someone that's like a daddy, like I need to give oversight in my home. When Joshua needs someone that he can get wise counsel from, a son should be able to go to his dad and get oversight. He should be able to have someone that he can talk to that's had a little bit more life experience that can help him. That's what being a daddy is about. It's about giving oversight in the home. And a wise father is giving oversight to his family physically and emotionally and spiritually. He's an overseer. And just think about the words. Someone who is there to see, someone who is over that situation, taking responsibility for it. That's what the word literally means. In fact, one of the images, one of the word pictures that the New Testament uses to give us a feel for what it means to be an overseer is the word shepherd. In fact, the second word that's used in 1 Timothy, for this idea of an overseer, is the word elder. And the word elder, just like the literal English word, just means someone that is experienced. Someone who has some maturity. Let's turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5. And the reading this passage is important because we, we have the opportunity of having one of the first century overseers. One of the first century elders. One of the first century church leaders talk to us about his heartbeat 
and what he wants the heartbeat of all the leaders and churches to be. In 1 Peter chapter 5, we have the Apostle Peter himself saying, To the elders, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. So the Apostle Peter, even though he was an apostle, also views himself as being one of the first century church's overseers, one of their fathers, one of their daddy figures, you might say. And he says that I, want, I appeal to you as a fellow elder, as a witness of Christ's suffering. So Paul, Peter, I mean, was not just an elder, but he was a very important first century elder because he had actually witnessed the sufferings of Christ. Peter was there. Peter was there when Christ was crucified. He saw Jesus hanging on the tree. And he also says that, that he was a witness of the glory that would be revealed. And I want to really underscore it because a lot of being a spiritual leader is nailing down the commitments of life, the faith commitment. Like if you were to say, Dave, what's at the core of your being? You know, if you get down and shake you down and, and you say, Dave, tell us what you believe, what are you building your life on? And Peter's statement right there is right at the core of my existence and Mary's existence. I believe that Christ suffered on the cross of Calvary to forgive my sins and your sins. I believe that about 2,000 years ago that a literal savior hung on an actual Roman gibbet in, in an incredible miracle of mercy and grace that we'll never totally understand. When that son died, when Jesus of Nazareth died, when God's anointed one, the Messiah, died, he made it possible for all the sins of the world to be washed whiter than snow. It's an old gospel. It's an old good news. But like Peter of old, I'm saying that as a spiritual leader, that commitment of the power of the gospel, the power of Christ to forgive sins, I believe with all my heart that Christ is doing that today. That through the power of his death, that he can make you totally forgiven, no matter what you've done. I also believe that he is now at the right hand of God in his glory and that one day when my physical life ends, I will be united with him in his glory. And I believe that all of you that have joined in that commitment of faith will be united as well. A spiritual leader is someone who is committed to those straightforward biblical messages of good news. And not everyone believes that. In the modern world, even a lot of people that go to church do not really believe literally that God has given the gift of his son. But I want to go on record saying, I believe that. As your spiritual leader, I'm banking my whole life on the truthfulness of what I've just told you, that Christ died and there's forgiveness in his death. He rose again, and because he rose again, we have a hope that will never be stifled, will never be snuffed out. The Apostle Peter also says this, in light of that commitment of faith, in light of the fact that he was a witness of these things and he was inviting others to join him in that commitment of faith, he says this, therefore be shepherds of God's flock. What I want you to know is that one of the greatest needs in the body of Christ today is for those of you that are older, for those of you who have life experience with the Savior, to be shepherds of these little sheep. And the reason I'm telling you this is because I don't want you as you grow older, to miss the meaning of life. And I have some very dear friends that have done that. I've had other friends that have listened to what we're talking about, and they, even in their older years, are, are pouring their lives 
into little sheep, little children, and then a little bit bigger sheep, like teenagers, and a little bit bigger sheep, like college and career-age people. What I want you to realize is that the Apostle Peter is saying that if you are committed to the faith, if you're committed to what Christ did for you, if you're committed to the resurrection, then in God's family, you are responsible to be shepherds of God's sheep. And it's a beautiful image of, a, of Jesus, the ultimate good shepherd from John 10, but he invites those that are mature in the faith to become under shepherds, to work under his guidance and under his administration to take care of the little flock. When you hear about marriages that are breaking up, shepherds are concerned about those sheep that are wandering and that, that, that have gotten lost. He's been down on his face before God, just crying out to God to do something. That's a shepherd that cares. I've had others come and, and tell me that, you know, how can I get in touch with so-and-so and what can I do? That's this business of being in a flock. And in the modern world, we're moving more and more away from the idea that we're in a flock, that we're, that we're in, in the same sheepfold and that we're responsible for one another. In fact, I want to tell you something. Sheep that are wandering will get very upset with you about caring for them because they want to get rid of you. They want to be able to do their own thing. They want to be able to, to not have somebody that holds them accountable. And, and, and you've got to hang in there as a shepherd. You've got to keep praying for those lost sheep. You also need to help the tender little ones to grow to maturity. And I want to challenge you today. Are you hearing Peter's words? Those of you that are older in the faith, be shepherds of God's flock. Your Christian life will never work. It'll never be vibrant. It'll never be real unless you, as an older person, are working with the generation below you. And in our own church family, we started out very small. Like in our own family, for example, Janae works in children's church. And she teaches in children's church. Why? Because as she's learned some things, it's important for her to counsel and to teach and to help with the little guys. And I want all of you that are teachers and, and have leadership, you need to realize one of your biggest jobs is to, it, is to help people to have the confidence to shepherd the generation below them. For example, one of the most powerful ways to reach teenagers. In fact, the secular world has now realized this. You know how you teach children, to, uh, teenagers, to be sexually pure? You get a bunch of college students that have already gone through high school. You get a bunch of college students that come and speak to the high school students. And those college students share from their guts the bad choices and the good choices they make. In the secular world, it's found that's the most powerful way to help teenagers to make wise moral choices. What is that? A shepherd that's had a little bit more experience helping the sheep that are just below them. And what I want you to realize is that I want you to never get over that involvement. To speak to you very plainly, what I find in our culture right now, and it's one of the greatest problems in the church, I find that a lot of Americans have had two children, like Don and Karen, for example, have two children. It's kind of like, in our family, it's like having just Jonathan and Joel. And if Mary and I had just Jonathan and Joel without Josh and Janae, then we would relatively be done with our parenting. I'll be honest with you, my 21-year-old son doesn't really need me checking up on him constantly. Jonathan and Joel are young men. When I was their age, my father didn't have the foggiest idea what I was doing. In fact, I got married when I was 20 and was totally on my own completely. My father didn't have, know what I was doing at all. And I noticed a lot of you that have raised your families, 
that are my age without Josh and Janae behind, you know what you start to conclude? My time is done. My time is done. I've, I've listened to the Iwana verses. I raised our children. I ran, just like in the secular school. I've come up through the school, and I did all the voluntary things. Same thing's true at church. I have put in. I've done my time in the nursery. I've done my time teaching Sunday school. I've done my time rubbing shoulders. This is my time to have a good time. This is my time not to have to carry the load. This is my time to be able to bop from one church to the next and and not really have to connect with anybody because I've been hurt through the years and I don't really want to get connected. I plead with you, my older brothers and sisters, you are the most valuable assets in the body of Christ because you have the life experience and I want to keep you from dying and shriveling and becoming selfish. The Lord calls you. It's those that are in their 40s and 50s, and 60s, and 70s, and 80s, and 90s. Because in God's family, you retire in heaven. You can retire from your job so that you have more opportunity and involvement to do what God's called you to do, and that's to minister spiritually to people. And that's not for ministers to do. A minister can't do it. You have a millions more impact than I do. All I do is is act like a coach yelling in the huddle. You're the ones that go out there and can really play the game. And what I want you, I want you to capture a vision. I want you to capture a drive that the meaning of my life is not going to be just to make money. It's not just to be, have a powerful job. The meaning of my life is going to be to shepherd sheep. Don told us around the table yesterday afternoon about a funeral they just had in his own church where he plays the piano in Nashville. The pastor did an unusual thing. After the, the introductory things, this pastor had set up a couple mics just there in the center of the auditorium. A dear lady, an older saint, very quiet, not many people would know her, you would think. But she had taught Sunday school in this church family for centuries. And what the pastor said is that as, as we have this service, and hundreds had come, it wasn't like someone just dying in the nursery home. This lady had hundreds come. And the pastor said, as, as, before I say some words, I want to give you an opportunity to come and share. And one person after another came to the microphone. Don was sharing me some guy that had real long hair with ponytails, and, and you would look at them and think they were a Harley Davidson motorcycle freak. And a dear guy got up and shared how this woman kept coming after him and kept going for him, wouldn't let him get away until he made Jesus where he needed to be in his life. And one guy after another and one girl after another came up. That's what I covet for every one of you. She didn't have a bombastic mouth personality, but she just faithfully cared and shepherded people for a long time. So when she went home to be with the Lord, there were people that she had powerfully impacted their life. And I want to tell you, my message today is, that's the meaning of life. That's the noble task. And that's a task that never ends till you go home to glory. But it is a noble task. It is a good work. And Peter says that we can never do that under compulsion. It says you must not do this because you must. I want to share with you, don't ever do something for Christ because someone has manipulated you to get you to do it. I remember years ago when, I, when the Jonathan and Joel were young, I remember going over to a friend's house and this friend started out by telling him what a great athlete I was, and I should have known he was buttering me up. 
He said, man, I've seen you play basketball at the church. I've seen you play the football a little bit. And, you know, you're really a good athlete, a lot better athlete than I am. And our boys need a soccer coach. And I know that you haven't played soccer, but I think you can do it. And he just roped me in to coaching my boys in soccer. And I did it because I must. Now, I enjoyed it, and I'm glad in some way that he did rope me into it. But I really did it kind of out of obligation. This guy put such a heavy load on me that somebody needed to coach these boys in soccer that I must do it. You ever be, have you ever been in a situation like that? All of you have. In fact, school activities are, are, are filled with that kind of a thing. Someone's got to do this, and you're the someone. You know, you must. Don't serve the Lord like that. It'll kill you. It'll kill you. Peter says, don't serve and be a leader because you must, but serve willingly because you want to. What I want to challenge you today is, is to open your heart to the Spirit and ask him what the Spirit of God is giving you a willing spirit to get involved in. And I would encourage you to, to not overdo it. Don't get involved in a million different things at once. But every single one of you need to allow the Spirit of God to produce a willingness to get involved in something where you're involved in communicating to others and sharing with others. It'll change your life. So don't do it under compulsion. Don't do it because you must, but do it because you want to. And then Peter says this. As God wants you to be not greedy for money, so you don't do it for financial obligations, and most people don't do that well in the spiritual ministry anyway as far as making money, so don't be greedy for money. Sadly, there are those that use religion and spiritual things to make money, but we need to, be, to spurn that and to turn away from it. But instead, I want you to be eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. It's a noble task. Did you read what God just said? Some of you that have served as models and examples and older shepherds in this family, God is saying that that's a noble task, and you will receive a crown of glory that will never fade away. From God's evaluation of human existence to be a spiritual mentor, to be someone that's mentoring the next generation in your own individual families, then in your extended church family, to take on that kind of responsibility is a noble thing, and you will receive a crown of glory. Now notice Peter says, not lording it over the flock. I want to talk to you today about two styles of leadership. There's a marvelous contrast, a very powerful contrast, between a secular leader and a spiritual leader. And the essence of it is right here. The secular boss is concerned about titles, He's concerned about having ownership of the people that are under his authority. And then he uses that ownership to get what he wants. That's his secular leader. Now, Peter just introduced to us to another kind of a leader. And this is a leader that doesn't need titles. They don't need position. They don't need to have supposed authority over people. But they move people a totally different way. They move people not by their power, but they move people by their personal example. And the greatest leaders that have ever lived in all of history are always leaders that lead without titles. They don't need titles. They don't need power over people. They move people by the force of their own example, their own personhood, you might say. In this case, the power of being a servant. Now, some of you say, well, Dave, I don't want to get involved in church leadership because in, it's 
church leadership is worse than business leadership. People fight harder, they argue more, and that's true. And something that encourages me, I want you to look at a scripture, because there's a scripture in Luke chapter 22, and let's turn there. Luke chapter 22 speaks to us about, it's Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 25. And what intrigues me about this passage is, this is the Last Supper. Now, if ever there was a holy time, it was the Last Supper. I mean, Leonardo da Vinci with his Renaissance painting, it's amazing how they all have Renaissance-styled hair and Renaissance clothes, and they're they're sitting in a Renaissance form. But all of you have seen Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper, right? I'm sure you have. And this is the Last Supper in Luke chapter 22. Now, Jewish people really don't sit at long tables in the first century. They would lie down like this. The way they ate was kind of like a bunch of teenagers that were watching TV with dips. And at the Last Supper, you want to picture all the disciples lying like this and all together. That's why it says John was in Jesus' bosom. Well, if I'm leaning over on the guy sitting next to me when we're sitting at one of our kind of English tables... That's going to be really weird. But you can understand what it meant was that John was right here and Jesus was lying right next to him. And you see how we would be that close. You would be right lying side by side. And what John was telling you is when it says he leaned on Jesus' bosom in the King James Version, it sounds like some weird thing going on there. It simply means that they were lying. He had the position close to the Lord. So that's what was going on at the Last Supper. That's what it was like. So, and, and this is the Last Supper, you know, where Jesus, you know, gave him the, 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 the beautiful imagery of the vine. I'm the vine, you are the branches. This is the Last Supper where Jesus talked to him about the Holy Spirit coming down. And so this is one of the most holy times that Jesus ever had with his disciples. But you know what happened right at the Last Supper? They broke out in a fight. It says in verse 24 of Luke chapter 22, look at it. Luke twenty two twenty four 24 says, also a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be considered the greatest. It sounds like a bunch of, of Muhammad Ali's shouting out, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest. It's almost ludicrous. It's almost funny. Here they are, the disciples, supposed to be the holy ones, and they're fighting. What I realized in my study this week is this fight went on throughout the whole ministry of the Lord. In Mark chapter 8, they're arguing over who would be the greatest. And in Mark 10, they're arguing again over who should be the greatest. And the Lord brings a little child and puts him in their midst. And then it arises again in this context of the Last Supper, repeatedly about four times in the New Testament, the disciples are arguing over who's going to be the greatest. Now that encourages me, because as I work with you, you argue over who's going to be the greatest at times. And children's church needs to be my way. And and an elder cries, no, we've never done it that way. It needs to be my way. Awana should be like this. Tim and Becky need to do this with the teenagers. And I don't know, I'm just picking some wild things, nothing really concrete. But you know what I'm talking about. In your own group, as soon as your power is attacked, as soon as your little area of influence is attacked, man, boy, you get, your feathers go up. I'm the greatest. I'm the one that knows how to do it. The church family I spoke at last Sunday was in a major debate over what they should do with their Sunday school and some changes in their Sunday school. They had a big meeting Monday to try to resolve that. And one of the hardest things to get a church family to do is to not holler out, I'm the greatest. To not have people say, well, if it's not done my way, I'm out of here. And what I want you to see is that it, don't get discouraged. Some of you are going to say, well, man, I'm not going to be part of a church. Look at the way those people act. The early disciples acted like this. And we're still here 2,000 years later. 
God's going to patiently keep working with us. Don't walk away from the only group that has the message of eternal life, that will ultimately have it together, even though we don't have it together now. And what I appreciate is the Bible is very honest about these things. It doesn't paint Peter, James, and John as being these saints that never had any of the argumentativeness that we have. So they're debating back and forth. I'm the greatest. And I can see Peter saying, oh, I'm the greatest. I need to be the leader here because I'm the mouth. And I'm the one that has strong positions. And John says, no, you're always putting your foot in your mouth. And, and I'm the one that really lies close to the Lord and has an intimate relationship with him. And James, their brother, says, neither one of you are going to be the greatest. I'm going to be the greatest because I'm much more practical than all of you. And I know how to get things done. And Nathaniel says, I'm the oldest one here. And I'm the godly Israelite here. I'm going to be the greatest. I'm going to be the leader. We all argue. What we do in our own church circles, we all spread and join and form our own little churches where we can be the greatest, even if we're the only person in the church. But notice what the Lord Jesus says. The kings of the Gentiles, the Lord Jesus in the midst of this argument says, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like this. What the Lord is describing, it, I, pictured, I picture it like this. I have this dream Don and I were raised in New York City. Every single weekend we went to New York City. And I would often be in front of those big hotels. Like Trump wasn't a big guy when I was a kid, but I'll use Trump because you would identify him. I want you to picture me in front of Trump Tower. Now, in front of Trump Tower, is like this time of the year, there's slush that's sprayed all over you. And if you're trying to hail a taxi cab, it's hard to do it. But I've often been at a, at a place like that in New York, and one of those big black limos or big white limos comes up. How many of you have ever seen those things in Dallas? And I always, my thing, I would wonder, like, who's behind the glass? Dark glass and everything. But I have this dream. I would love to be able to be the person that sits in the back seat of that limo. Because you know what? You drive up in front of the Trump Towers. You don't have to open the door yourself. I mean, the chauffeur drives the car. The doorman runs out of the hotel, opens your door for you as if you're an imbecile that couldn't even open a car door. You walk in, and if you're a big power executive, I've seen power executives, you walk into their office, I mean, everybody's, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir, and, and everyone's running helter-skelter, the big boss is here, and I, and I love that. There's a part of me that would really like to have that. There's a part of me that, man, wouldn't that be really neat, you know, to have limousines like that and have people open the door for me and everything else? And that's what secular leadership is about. The president of the United States has people that do that for him. And when they play Hail the Chief, everyone stands up. <laughs> but it's all about titles and prestige. And the idea is, like, if you're a benevolent dictator, that's the idea of that you want to be called a benefactor. If you're one of these leaders, you want your people to think you're good. So you try to do kind things to take care of them. But it's all about controlling people. It's about having authority over them. And I want all of you to know that deep in your souls is that has a stronghold upon you. What Jesus is saying is spiritual leadership is not like that. It's not about having a hold over people. It's not about titles, and it's not about prestige. Instead, the Lord Jesus tells his disciples something very profound about the kind of leadership that we need. He says this. It says, but you are not to be like this. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, like a little child. And I'm going to talk about what that means as we close. And the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you the kingdom. 
Jesus says something that's incredible. You know what he's saying? He's saying if you want to really have an influence over people, you know who has an influence over people? A leader in God's family is the one that fights to get the cart. Now, there's a lot of other people that say, well, you know, I don't do any of that stuff. I don't do that because that's not my thing. In fact, I've often had people say to me when, I'll, when, when I've been, like on a Wednesday night when I'm grabbing the cart because this is the church of the moving chairs, I'll often have somebody to say, well, you're the pastor. You shouldn't have to do that because you've been raised in environments where the pastors don't clean the john. They don't do any custodial work. They don't stack chairs. They don't do that. You know why? Because that's a secular view of leadership. You see, we want power. See, the idea is that as I get higher, then I don't have to do the menial thing. And some of you are really into that. Some of you husbands are like that. Some of you husbands say, cleaning the johns in our house, my wife does that. Why? Why does she do it? Because you're the leader. You're the big boss. And deep, I want you to think about what's going on deep in your soul. That's your pride. You know that one of the best things you can do spiritually is get down on your knees with a disinfectant and clean the bathroom. Because it's desperately needed in your family. If your family doesn't do that, you're going to get sick. It's a way to care for your family. And you know what? You'll learn what it means to really be a leader doing that. That's what the Lord is saying. And I know some of you, it's going to go right over your head. You're not going to get it. You see, real leaders, the way they influence people is there's power in their presence. Socrates was not a believer, as far as we know. You know, it came before the New Testament era. But Socrates didn't have a title. He didn't have any position. All Socrates did was walk around a city and talk to people. And yet, do you realize he didn't have a PhD? Didn't teach in a prestigious university? No teacher except one. No teacher except one other influenced people like Socrates did. Socrates has dominated Greek thought from the time that he lived right up until the present. There's one other teacher that was like Socrates, and that is Jesus of Nazareth. And I want you to think about the way they did it. Jesus at the Last Supper took off his outer clothes and washed the disciples' feet. Have you ever washed dirty Texas feet? Some church families actually do that on a Sunday morning. I think it's a beautiful, good thing to do. Because it's hard to do that. In fact, one of the hardest things is to let somebody else wash your own feet. Really hard. But it helps us to begin to think the reason Jesus did that is he was a kind of a teacher that knew how to, how to get down right to the nitty-gritty. I want to ask all of you, the essence of leadership is I don't have to be the boss. I don't have to have the recognition. I don't have to have the title. I can be like a little kid that does the servant things. I'm going to close with this illustration. I've used it before, but it, it just, again and again, the Lord reminds me of this. And maybe the Lord will use it in your life to remind you about the difference between the boss and the titles and his servant. Several years ago, Mary was going to surprise me and do a romantic thing. One of the things that happens in our marriage is we're blowing and going in ministry, and the romance can go out the window, and, and I can be bad about that. And Mary was going to really surprise me and take me to this marvelous concert over in Dallas. And I had no idea about it. It was a, it was a total surprise. And in our, in our evening meals, we eat at a counter... And it was back when Joel was in high school, and we would all gather together. Joel came bopping in from school, up at the high school, came bopping in, looked at his mom and said, Mom, have the tickets to the Name the Concert come in yet? It was like he had taken a beautiful vase and just smashed it on the floor. Mary started to cry. 
I could have beat the tar out of Joel, except he's bigger than I am. So I, <clears throat> but I tore into Joel. I laid into Joel. I said, Joel, how could you be so cruel? How could you have done such a stupid thing? And he's saying to me, but Dad, I didn't know it was a surprise. I said, I don't care whether you knew it or not. It's stupid that you did that. And, man, I went on and on and on. Man, I let him have it. I reamed him up one side and down the other. Then we went and ate. Had one of those great meals together. <laughs> Sound like you're home sometimes? About two days later, two night, it was about two nights later, I was sitting on our divan in our, in our TV area. The den, like, and uh, Mary came in and tapped me on the shoulder and says, Janae wants you to put her to bed. Now, I was reluctant to go in and put Janae to bed that night because Janae's like our Jiminy Cricket. She's like a conscience. She's kind of like, she has a lot of her mother in her already, but she's like the conscience of the family. And I had this sneaking suspicion that Janae and I might have to have a talk. And, but I went in because Daddy was supposed to go in. And I'm in, I'm rubbing Janae's back and told her a Bible story and prayed. But before we pray that night, Janae says, Daddy, you need to tell Joel that you were sorry. I'll never forget in my heart, I'm thinking, Janae, I'm your dad. That's the first thing I thought. Number two, I'm not only your dad, but I am your pastor as well. And number three, I have a doctorate degree in theology from Dallas Theological Seminary. But what I really said to Janae was none of those things. What I really said to her, I said, Janae, it hurt mommy really badly. And that's why I got angry. And that's why I laid into Joel, because Joel ruined mommy's surprise. And so I went on. I said, you know why I got angry, because Joel ruined, irreparably ruined mommy's surprise. Janae says, I know that. That's true. But it wasn't Joel's fault. He didn't know. And you need to say that he's sorry. Now, in a moment of time, in a moment of time, and you're all going to have to decide what kind of a leader you're going to be. In a moment of time, you're going to decide whether you exercise control over people or whether you follow the servant leadership. You see, Jesus put a little child in the midst of the disciples. And you know what Jesus was saying? You see, when truth is the issue, if the little child is right, they're right. It doesn't make any difference whether the Pope himself thinks they're wrong. They're right. Janae was right. It wasn't any difference whether I was her pastor or her dad or had multiple PhDs. That doesn't make any difference. She was right. It was truthful. It was the right thing to do. And in a moment of time, I had to decide, will I humble myself and submit to even Janae telling me the truth, which is what leadership is about. And all of you are going to have to decide, what kind of a man are you going to be? What kind of a woman are you going to be? What are you going to live your life for? And I remember that night, I looked at Janae and said, you know what, Janae, you're right. And I had to get up off the bed and go in and get hold of Joel and look at him in the eye and say, Joel, what I did the other night was the pits. You know why I was angry and I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Those are the hardest words to do, aren't they? But that's when there's healing in relationships. And the kind of leadership you say, Dave, why have you talked to us like this today? Because if you as a dad, if you as a mom, will get a hold of what it means to be a shepherd the way I've talked to you today, your kids will rise up and call you blessed because you will be the real thing in the home. Not perfect, but you'll be the real thing. 
It'll release you from so much agony in your jobs because you won't be always striving to get that position and the power. You'll realize that the Lord will take care of that, that you can just be yourself and you can stand for truth and you can be a servant. You know what you're going to find? You know what happens to servants? You see, big power people. And I, there's some times in my life where I am in the big power position. Like when I go to a convention and, and maybe it's a book-selling thing and where I've been an author, I want to share something what happens in those kind of positions. You know what? People can't really talk to you anymore. They don't really tell you what they're like because they're, they're scared of you. You're distant from them. You know who gets really close to people? The servant, the janitor. Janitors can really talk to people because there's no hype anymore. And you can just get close and, and you hear the truth. Because people don't try to impress janitors. You see, servants, you see, the reason the Lord called us to be servants is that what you really need in your life is to get really inside of people, to get really close to them, to find out what they're thinking and what they're feeling and what their struggles are, and to come alongside them and be able to, to be there for them. That's where real meaning is. Title people, power people. People that need ownership and possession lose all of that. And they come flaunting in and they think they're really big stuff. The tragedy is they don't know anybody and nobody knows them. And ultimately you won't know God because the Savior has come, not as the big power leader, but he has come as the lowly servant that pours out his life for others. What I challenge you today, this church needs a new generation of servants. Not titled people, not power people. We need servants. I want you to realize is that it's, it, it's an incredible thing. It's easy to look at someone and say, well, man, I could never be like that. Yes, you can. The Spirit of God that, that has worked in their life can work in yours. And I want you to start getting a passion to let that happen. Because that's what leadership is about. And I covet that for you younger ones. You can go out there and make a lot of money and get big positions. But what you really need in your life is to have a host of people that are devoted to you because you've been a servant to bring the truth of Christ into their life. Let's pray. Father, I just would pray that we'll realize that you told us if anyone desires the office of a leader, it's a good thing. And Lord, as I hear those words, when it comes to a medical career, a lot of people are disqualified because they flunk out of organic chemistry. So they couldn't desire to be a medical doctor anymore. Lord, there's a lot of people that flunk out of calculus and they can't go on with a field in physics or, or other math. Lord, there's a lot of athletes that I've seen through the years that all their younger years they devoted to becoming athletes and yet they were disqualified. They, just, they weren't strong enough. They weren't fast enough. They weren't big enough. What an awesome thing it is that you are still saying to us today, if anyone desires the office of being a shepherd an overseer, a servant in the body of Christ, that they're not disqualified. If anyone desires this kind of influence, the Spirit of God wants to generate that in their life. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is 
668-7884.